1 Timothy chapter 1, and this evening we'll be in verses 3 through 11. 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 11. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. Lord, as we open up your word and look at what your Bible has to say to us tonight, I, I pray, Lord, that, that we would hear these words and even though you gave this commission through Paul to Timothy, the pastor of the church there at Ephesus, that really we all have a part in this as well, whether it's receiving this word or communicating this word, that of utmost priority of singular importance to you in your church is right and accurate doctrine and teaching about you. Because that informs our worship, it informs our fellowship, it informs our acts of good, it informs our holiness, it informs all of our life, Lord. And so, even though there are so many things in the church that vie for our attention and seek to distract us, sometimes on purpose, sometimes not, from this singular purpose, tonight I pray that we would have this helpful word to us as a centering so that we might be reminded of this important truth, Lord. Lord, we ask this all for your glory that we might know and love you better, Jesus. In your name, amen. Well, here we're in the very beginning and we see some of the most important things, of course, are going to be what Paul gets at immediately right away here in his book. And after his greeting, 
he doesn't waste any time but gets right into the nitty and the gritty of what he wants to say. And he has to urge Timothy and remind him of why he left him there, the whole point and purpose. Primarily, negatively, we'll see a little bit later on, positively, negatively here to bring discipline against these false teachers, bring teaching against these false teachers. Positively, he's going to ordain and lay hands on elders and deacons within the church so that they can participate in this ministry as well of sound doctrine. Now, his aim is important, and we looked at this for a long time last Sunday. It comes from love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. The only reason why Paul would say, make sure these certain teachers don't do the things that we're going to look at them doing is out of a heart of love for the people that are there within the church, their health, their vitality, and their well-being. You know, there's an accusation that is leveled against people who love sound doctrine, teach sound doctrine, and it's that we don't care enough about people. We care more about this book and being accurate and right than we do about the people who we're ministering to. It's one of the fuels for the fire that's kind of going on in the church right now as if we should be about all of these social programs and social actions towards people or should we be about the truth of God's word. Well, those aren't mutually exclusive, but one should inform the other. And the one that should inform the other is right doctrine should inform the way we treat other people, not the other way around. And so if we have genuine love, if I love everybody here, everybody who listens, everybody who is a part of Sovereign Joy Christian Fellowship, then primarily my job is going to be preaching the truth of the Word of God, preaching it as accurately as I can, with as much emphasis as I can, hopefully with the power of the Holy Spirit as much as I can, in the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory as much as I can. And that's where the pure heart, the good conscience, and the sincere faith come in, right? I have a pure, repentant heart. We looked at that last week, that I am one who desires to have a repentant heart, quick to ask for forgiveness, quick to acknowledge my sin so that my heart maintains that right standing before the Lord, A good conscience, that my conscience has been cleaned because I'm trying to live consistently with his revealed word and a sincere faith. So what are we to do? What was Timothy specifically to do? And it was to charge certain persons. Let me read you these verse, I'm going to leave out verse 5, but verse 3. I urge you when I was going to Macedonia... Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, not to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Verse 6, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion. 
desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So there's a lot there that these certain persons are saying. Now, it seems to me that probably Timothy understood and knew who these people were, and he didn't have to name them. He names a couple of people at the end of this chapter, which we'll get to maybe, Lord willing, next week. But here, he doesn't even have to name these people. What is important isn't their names. What is important is the error that they are teaching. And so I marked out four things here that they were teaching. And then we'll find that what happens is Paul gives the correction of what is needed for the error, these four errors that these guys are teaching in verses 8 through 11. And that is going to be a right use of the law. Okay, so that's where we're going here this evening. First, the four problems or the four errors that was happening from these teachers. First of all, they were teaching a different doctrine. They were teaching different doctrine. Different from who? Well, Paul, right? I mean, he's the one who came to that church of Ephesus, who had founded it. Probably at this point, he had already been through that experience in Acts chapter 20, where he was returning to Jerusalem, and he stopped in Miletus. Is it Miletus? I think it is off the top of my head. I could be wrong. When the Ephesian elders came and met him there, he didn't want to stop in Ephesus because he wanted to get back to Jerusalem, and he knew that would take a lot of time. So he meets with those Ephesian elders, and there in that meeting, one of the things he emphasizes is wolves are going to rise up from within the church. They're going to try to teach error. They're going to try to steal, rip off, if you will, the faith of the believers within the church. But it's going to happen. Beware, be watchful, be mindful for these wolves rising up within the midst of the congregation. They're going to teach different doctrine than the one Paul already laid out. He says here at the very last verse in verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. So contrary to the gospel. Now we have a little key down here in verse 7 that it had to do with reference to the law. They were teaching things about the law. So whatever the false doctrine was for them, they needed to have a right understanding of the law so that when the false teachers came with something that opposed the gospel and was related to the law, people would be able to sniff it out right away. Now, we would understand if I were to, you know, write a letter to you guys, if I weren't here and say, beware that certain persons not teach any different doctrine. And I went on lengthy about Christ and his being part of the Trinity, that I would be concerned about non-Trinitarians influencing the church, whoever they may be, right? Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Unitarians, whatever they might be, modalists. So here, they're teaching different doctrine. One of the important things is that you have the truth of God, so when you hear the error, you know, something just doesn't sound right and sit right. You might not always know chapter and verse to go to, right? But that's okay. That's okay. 
You know, when you hear something error in error that's being taught, whether it's through a conversation or whether it's through an audio recording or video or something or just somebody up preaching, there should be something within you that just says that isn't right as you've been taught the word of God rightly and accurately over and over and over again. Now, these false teachers, number two, are devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Now, I'm not going to go into that a great length because we talked about it last week. Remember, the, the myths were that the Old Testament stories were added on and then added on and then added on and then added on all throughout the ancient Hebrew writings so that you had these stories that were extrapolated to the nth degree that had no place and no founding in Scripture themselves. And then, of course, endless genealogies. They love their genealogies. They love to be able to trace their lineage all the way back to wherever they possibly could. But verse 6. Swerving from the truth, swerving from a repentant heart, a good conscience, sincere faith, they wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law. Now, there's, of course, the famous verse in the book of James that says, don't let many of you become teachers because you know that we're going to have to endure a stricter judgment. But there is a desire that's within people to, to be a teacher. And that isn't a bad thing. In fact, Paul addresses that a little bit later on in this book, that he who desires to be an elder, a teacher, a pastor in the church, That's a good thing. So the desire to be a teacher in and of itself isn't the problem that Paul's trying to address with Timothy here. It's desiring to be a teacher of the law without understanding. Either what they're saying or the things they're making confident assertions of, you see? So the point, the problem is that they've wandered away into vain discussion. They've gotten caught up in the discussions of the Judaizers. Things that we find maybe in the book of Galatians where there's this heresy that comes in through the Judaizers. Remember, Galatia is just a stone's throw from Ephesus. Well, maybe a little further than that, but it's right there. It's pretty much in the general area of Ephesus. So it isn't odd for that same heresy that is there in Galatia to find its way there into Ephesus. And there in Ephesus, the heresy that's coming out is this Judaism. And Paul addressed in Galatians saying that if somebody comes to you with a different doctrine... One that had to do in that case with commingling Judaism with Christianity via circumcision, may they be anathema. If you preach or you hear or someone preaches any other gospel than the one already given, in fact, Paul even includes himself. If I come and I preach to you something else later on down the road, even, <clears throat> may I be anathema. May that person be anathema. Damned is the word. Whoever they are, if there's any other gospel coming than the gospel that had already been preached, because there is no other gospel. But these people have swerved from these and have wandered away into vain discussions because of their desire to be teachers of the law. They have this desire for influence. They had this desire for this kind of ministry. There's an interesting passage in Matthew 23, and you might know it. Matthew 
Jesus here is addressing the scribes and the Pharisees, and, and they've been attacking him. It's been a whole week during this Passion time, and I look at this time as these religious leaders of the day scrutinizing Jesus and finding no fault in him before his crucifixion. But here, he says in verse 23, let's start there, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites! For you tithe of mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. But you blind guides, you're straining out at a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees first clean the outside of the cup and the plate, so that, or pardon me, the inside, so that the outside may also be clean. Well, he goes on there talking about them being whitewashed tombs and full of dead men's bones. And actually that whole chapter is really pertinent to what we're looking at here. But specifically, I wanted to look at this because what you find here is kind of what I think Paul's getting at. These had believed the truth or at least had acknowledged or followed at some point the truth. They might give lip service to Jesus Christ at one point, but they swerve from those good things and they wander away into vain discussion. Here you see the scribes and Pharisees rebuked by Jesus in what I might call them being very focused on vain discussion. Am I tithing of my mint seeds? My cumin seeds, my dill seeds. Do I have all of those right in a row? And Jesus is saying, that is vain. Yes, okay, you should be doing that, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. You have wandered away into the vain things and emphasized those to the exclusion of the important things, faithfulness, mercy, justice, all of these kind of attributes that God is saying that he requires of his people. So this is what's happening. These Judaizers, these people who've come in, they're focusing on things that are really, really, if they're important at all, are very minor issues. They're a vain discussion. They don't understand either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. This is the fourth thing that really captured my attention is this confident assertions. It's odd. Here, they're speaking without understanding, but they're making confident assertions. They're speaking without understanding, but they're making these confident assertions. I've known so many people over the years who have made so many... I mean, I think of one guy in particular. He was so zealous and so confident in the things that he was saying and espousing. And, you know, back many, 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 many years ago, I didn't quite have the understanding that I do now. And to look back and to realize, man, that guy did not have a clue what he was talking about. No clue at all. 
Now, I look back whimsically and realize there are plenty of times where I probably was, could have been accused of the same thing. The problem is, is that hopefully my heresy was not so vain that it led people away from the gospel, which is the problem that's happening here. It's easy to get caught up in things that are extracurricular, if you will, and to the neglect of the main point of the gospel. But the problem isn't that. The problem these guys are experiencing is these discussions are actually drawing people away from the gospel towards a following of the law. A saying, you need to be right with God, and in order to do that, sure, Jesus is fine, but you need to have the law included there as well. And you need to follow it rightly and exactly. And so they're making these confident assertions about the law. Which is what they did in Galatia. Which is what they did in Corinth, right? Paul even called them, mockingly, the super apostles. He called them these people who were so eloquent and they were so precise in their language that they compelled people and they persuaded people. But Paul had to say over and over and over again, and they're in 2 Corinthians, they don't know what they're talking about. They're drawing people away from Christ. They're not following after the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're dragging people into these vain beliefs, and there it was legalism as well. They make confident assertions about these particular things. So number one, they're teaching a different doctrine. Number two, they're devoting themselves to myths. Number three, and en- or number two, endless genealogies. Number three, they desire to be teachers of the law. And number four, they make confident assertions, but they don't even understand what they're asserting. So this is the modus operandi, if you will, of false teachers. They teach a different doctrine, a different gospel. They devote themselves to myths or other kinds of things that detract from the gospel. They desire to be teachers of the law without understanding, but yet they make very confident assertions. So there you go. If you want to know what a false teacher looks like, he looks a lot like that. So what's the solution? Paul gives the answer here in the next few verses for how to answer these particular people. He doesn't just leave Timothy wondering, how do you answer these people? He says, it has to do with the law. So here's what I want to do really quick. This is just going to be an overview. Please bear with it. I would love to do a whole sermon on this, and maybe we'll get to it one day down the road. But there are three major uses of the law. Okay, this is the way it's historically delineated, three uses of the law. The, the very first use of the law is as a mirror, or what Paul says in Galatians, that it is a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. It's to expose our blemishes, explode, explode expose our sin, expose our spiritual deformity, if you will. And it causes us to look for cleansing. It causes us to look outward of ourselves for something that can make us right. It is the schoolmaster that drives us to Christ. Okay? That's the first use of the law. The second use of the law is to restrain evil. To restrain evil in the world. 
Thankfully, we have laws in this country against murder (laughs) and laws in this country against perjury and lying and theft and these kind of things. There was a time where there was a law against breaking the Sabbath, right? There's laws against blasphemy laws and those kind of things. But all in all, the law is designed to restrain evil, to keep evil in check. If there was no law and evil was just allowed to run rampant, we would have all kinds of problems. We probably wouldn't even be here. Let's be honest. The third thing is that the third use of the law is for believers. Believers alone. The first two were for unbelievers. I guess and believers alike for the second one, but mostly for unbelievers. But the third use of the law is really for believers only. And that's how to please God. How do we as Christians please God? We look to the law in the Old Testament and we find that this is God giving us his moral character. When he says don't do something, he's telling us something about himself, not just a list of do's and don'ts for us, his people. Right? Romans chapter 13 is a great place to look at this. And we'll look at this for just a minute. Because this is not what Paul has in mind in this text. But I want you to see it nonetheless. Because there are lots of people today who, as Christians, think the law doesn't apply to us at all in any way, shape, or form. And that's just simply not true. We need to be mindful of that. So Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are all summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So you see Paul's argument. He says, your command as a Christian is to love one another. And he, in explaining how to love one another, goes back to the Ten Commandments. And then back to Christ's admonition when he's called to sum up the whole law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So the law is vital and useful for us as Christians in living lives that are pleasing to God. It just won't do for a Christian to say, the law doesn't apply to me at all anymore in any way. I don't need it. I don't need the law in my life. Those kinds of people who would follow that kind of doctrine make a hash of much of the New Testament. Romans chapter 13 especially. But that was just a little side note because I wanted you to hear the three uses of the law and to know that there really are three uses of the law. And back to our text to see, well, what is Paul getting at here? If he's not getting at praising God, and, and maybe is it restraining evil, or maybe is it a mirror? Well, let's read and see. We know that the law is good if one uses it how? Lawfully. One might say the way it's intended to be used, right? To be used the way it's supposed to be used. Now note, in all three of those examples, none of those three uses of the law are how you get yourself right with God. Right? None of those examples are 
Here's how you, as a human being, make sure you stand before God in righteousness. None of those three uses of the law fit that category because that's unbiblical. That's what these guys were teaching. This is when Paul says they are without understanding either what they're saying or the things they're making confident assertions of. He's speaking against. They're using the law unlawfully. They're using the law in a way that it was not intended to be used. They're using the law in a way that promotes a holiness from within rather than a realization that from within I'm sinful and I need help from without. See the distinction? Hopefully you do. What Paul's getting at here is he's telling Timothy, here's the correction for the false doctrine. Use the law lawfully. Use the law the way that it was intended. The way to counteract someone who's coming to into the church and spreading false doctrine via the law is to use the law rightly. Use the law correctly. Use the law in the way it was intended. If somebody were to come in here and be spreading heresies about Jesus Christ, <clears throat> the example I used a little while ago, where are we going to go? We're not going to go to Exodus chapter 20 first, are we? We're going to go to Jesus Christ in the Gospels. John is a great place to go. And we're going to look at where John quotes Jesus as claiming to be God Almighty in several places. Chapter 5, chapter 10, and so on and so on, right? So what we're to you do, and I, what Paul is saying here is we're to use this book rightly. We're to understand it. Timothy's supposed to know it and be able to teach these people correction for these false teachers correctly for those who are within the church that perhaps might be being influenced by this false, these false teachings. So the counter to a false understanding and false teaching of the law is a proper teaching of the law. So we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. How do we know it's good? Well, Jesus said so. That's a good place to go, right? So Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount there. Probably know where I'm going with this. But anyways, Matthew chapter 5. It's good to look at it. Look at verse 17 through 20. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Some people read this verse and they go, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And their definition of fulfillment is basically an abolition of the law. I have not come to fulfill the law or to abolish the law. I came to abolish the law, right? His fulfillment of the law is not an abolition of the law, whereby there might be certain aspects of the law that he changes. We see that in the very next few chapters, he expands on the law and he teaches nuance of the law that hadn't been taught before. He has the right to do that, being the lawgiver. But he's not abolishing the law in fulfilling the law. He's fulfilling the law for our righteousness and then pointing us back to the law so that we might be rightly instructed how to be restrained from evil and how to give glory to God our Father. Amen? Verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. We could say a crossing of the T, a dotting of the I in modern vernacular if we wanted to. 
Well, it won't pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, verse 19, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the law is important. The law is vital. It still applies to each and every one of us today. Now, he goes, we looked at Matthew chapter 23 already, and we see exactly where the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees got them. Right? Dead man's bones and all that kind of stuff. Not very far. Our righteousness can exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, not by our own performance of the law, but Christ's fulfillment of the law compiled with us hearing the teaching of the law and then doing what we're taught, doing what we learn, doing what Scripture says. So, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. You see, Jesus here gives us the instruction for how to use the law lawfully. You see that, right? Hopefully. Jesus is here in the Sermon on the Mount giving instruction for how to use the law in a lawful manner, in a correct way, in a way that it was intended to be used. And so when Paul tells Timothy that the law is good, here's the things you say to these guys who are teaching the law in error. Understand that the law, moving on to verse 9 now, understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Ah, now we understand what of the three uses of the law, what way he's using it. It's the first use of the law. He's teaching us that the first use of the law is how we talk to people who are opposing us in good doctrine, or opposing the good doctrine to us. We come against them holding the mirror of the law because they need to repent. We are assuming they are not Christians if they're preaching a different gospel. So we use the law lawfully in the way it was intended. And the way it was intended to counter the false teachers as a mirror. As a schoolmaster. You need to repent and turn to Christ. Okay? So what he does here on out is, interestingly enough, he actually goes through nine of the Ten Commandments. Now, not exactly specifically, but he does what Jesus does is he expounds, exposits on the law, expands upon it. And I personally think what he's doing is he's addressing issues within the church of Ephesus that needed to be addressed in line with the Ten Commandments. So let's look at that really quickly here. In fact, grab your Bible. Put one finger in 1 Timothy there, like so, and do with a flipper, and get over to Ephesians, Ephesians, Exodus, they both start with E, that's probably my problem, Exodus chapter 20, and then put a finger there, so you can kind of flop back and forth a little here, because that's what we're going to do. Exodus 20. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness. And he goes on from there. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Verse 12, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Verse 13, you shall not commit murder. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. 15, you shall not steal. 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And 17, you shall not covet. And it goes on from there. So those are the Ten Commandments. Now, I did sum up, but that's because I want to finish the sermon in a reasonable amount of time. (laughs) You can certainly, and I want you to go back and reread these Ten Commandments in light of this text. But while you're holding your thing here, your thumb there, or if you're like me, flip back to 1 Timothy really quick and look at this as we go. First of all, ungodly. The first thing God says in the Ten Commandments is you shall have no other gods before me. Who is the person who has other gods before him? Ungodly, right? He is not of God. He is ungodly. So the very first thing Paul addresses here is the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. These people had another God before the true and living God. The next one here says sinners. You shall not make for yourself the card image of any likeness in heaven above and bow down to the image. What is idol worship? Sin. You, you are worshiping some aspect of sin. Whether it's mammon and the love of money, whether it's molech and the love of fertility and sex, or whatever it is, you are sinning and you are celebrating a sin by worshiping this other god. That's all idols are. Do you know that? Personifications of sin. You look at them and you can find that that's what they're doing in each and every single instance that you find an idol. It is a personification of some sin. And so he says that there are sinners here. Secondly, or thirdly, pardon me, they're unholy. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. If you're speaking words that are against the Lord, if you're speaking words that are opposed to him, you're taking his name in vain, you are not holy. You are not speaking in a holy manner, in a reverent, in a righteous, in a sacred manner. You are taking those things more lightly than you should. And lastly, in the first table of the law, profane. And you've heard it said many times, don't profane the Lord's day. Keep the Sabbath day, keep it holy. In the rest of the law, we find him saying that if one profanes the Sabbath day, they're to be killed. And this word profane is used there. Paul is using it here to remind them that they're not to profane the Lord's day. But those who strike, or pardon me, or those who strike their father and mother. Here we have honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that God is giving you. Some of your translations, if you have other than an ESV, might say who kill their father and mother. There are a couple of translations that say that rather than strike. Either way, it's not good. (laughs) You shouldn't strike or kill your parents. No, you shouldn't speak against it. You need to honor your father and mother. Honoring father and mother is is out of the abundance of my heart that I have a love for the Lord. I'm going to love and I'm going to honor and respect my parents that God has given me. Murderers, that's kind of self-explanatory, right? (laughs) Don't kill people. 
But then he goes on to, he says two things. One, the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. Now, the commandment that's violated here is you shall not commit adultery. And this particular commandment here, the seventh commandment, is in violation of all any violation of this particular law is any sexual sin that's committed other than the one in the bonds of marriage. End of line. <laughs> Anything that's outside of the bounds of marriage that is sexual activity is sin. Now here he brings up two specific, in my mind, instances. And I think the reason he has to do this is because these particular sins were rampant. Sexually immoral, those would be people who would be committing sexual sins with people who were not their husbands or their wives. Probably a better word or a word that we might understand better would be fornication. Just a regular, generalized sexual promiscuity. And then men who practice homosexuality. Now, there are those today who want to say that the New Testament never condemns homosexuality. Well, that's just simply not true. Here it is right here in the passage of scripture that we find right before us in 1 Timothy 1.10. It's undeniable that's what this word means. I'm not a Greek scholar, so I went and looked it up just to make sure. Sure enough, it's two words compounded together, bed and men, and it has to do with the connotation of men sleeping with one another in a sexual union. And here it's condemned as sin because it's a violation of the seventh commandment. It is outside of the bounds of the marriage covenant. It won't do to say, well, what about homosexual marriage? It won't do because that's not what God instituted. God instituted marriage between one man and one woman. It's unfortunate that I have to belabor this point. Now, for us, we probably understand that. But for most people out in the world today, this is radical stuff here. Super, super, super controversial. (laughs) But we need to remember that this is also a violation of this commandment. And you know what? There's going to be people who are going to come in the church, maybe our church, but have come in within the church at large who teach that homosexuality is actually an acceptable behavior to God before God, that it isn't sin as long as it's practiced monogamously or in the context of marriage or something like that. Enslavers. Some of your translations might say kidnappers. But this is a violation of the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal. Now, it's interesting that this is used here because lots of people say the Bible doesn't condemn slavery. Well, it does in several places. Here is one of them. Revelation chapter 18 is another place where slavery is condemned, in fact, in Scripture. But notice throughout the New Testament that oftentimes Paul, when he talks to those who are slaves and slave owners, that he doesn't say, let all your slaves free, or slaves riot against your master, right? There's that passage in 1 Corinthians 7 where he does say, if you have the opportunity to free yourself, go do it. That's a good thing. But other than that, there isn't anything else. You see here, the condemnation is against the person who goes and steals someone else and brings them and binds them into slavery. This is what is so abhorrent about the slave trade in our nation. It was enslaving in this way, man-stealing. 
So we can look back in our nation and say our nation definitely did commit grievous sin when it allowed this slave business to practice and to happen and continue and not be condemned. It's one of the places where people should have in the day stood up in their churches and said, no, this needs to stop because of this passage here. In fact, that's kind of what Paul is telling Timothy he needs to preach against, well, at least at one point. And it certainly should have been something that happened. Unfortunately, it isn't. Now, today, in our day and age, what we want to do in this particular area is we want to, as best as we possibly can, be united to those people who have endured similar, or have endured some kind of hostility. We know that slavery hasn't happened in a long, long, long time. We don't want to fall in the trap of, I'm blamed for something that happened a long time ago that my ancestors, I'm pretty sure, didn't have any part of. But while at the same time acknowledged that that was sin and it was wrong, and the church did play a part in it in certain areas. But we don't want to let that issue get in the way of the big gospel issue. We can't do that. There's a big discussion today in evangelicalism about how do we make these reparations and how do we mend these bridges. Well, it's the gospel. The gospel unites us. The gospel is what brings us together. The gospel is what has done this. Yes, that happened. Of course, I'm going to acknowledge that. I'm going to be the, absolutely say that. It's awful. It's horrible. That's absolutely right. It was tragic and wrong. The gospel, thank God, unites us together. Amen. Hopefully, we would hear an amen back when we talk like that. And perjurers and liars. I don't know specifically why perjury is included here. I have no idea the context that was going on at the time, but based upon everything else, there was something clearly going on. Maybe Christians felt no obligation to the government, and so they felt okay to perjure themselves, which is one of the commentaries I read kind of leaned that way, that just be, you know, being a Christian, I don't, I'm not under that government anymore. Maybe he's giving some correction there. I don't know. So I'm just going to leave it at that. Fair enough? I don't want to state further than I think it's stating itself. And anything else that is contrary to sound doctrine. For sure, covetousness would fall into that category. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 7. But in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So, the law is good if we use it lawfully, the way it was intended to. And the way it's intended to in this context is by showing the mirror, holding up the law against these people who are speaking these false doctrines. The assumption is they might have been practicing these very things. And they needed to experience this correction and this rebuke. And it comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Very last passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians 4, I'll begin in verse 3. If, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He is the one. Jesus is the very image of God. He is the one who shines forth. And even as we preach the law lawfully in the way it's intended, we need to have this helpful reminder that it is always needing to come back to the gospel of the blessed glory of God that we've been entrusted with. Lest we fall into this danger ourselves and focus on the law rather than on the lawgiver. The gospel of the glory of God the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which, with, with which we have been entrusted. Lord, we pray that you would take words like this and when we consider these laws that you have given, Lord, and the way that we're supposed to follow you and understand your truth, we pray, God, that you would give us the discernment in when and how to use the law appropriately and rightly, We understand that it would be very easy for us to get it wrong and screw it up, Lord. And so we ask your spirit to enable us and strengthen us as we hear from your word. We learn from you so that we might be people who appreciate the truth of your word and are ones who can go out from here and proclaim your gospel. And within the context of the church, We can refute doctrinal error through the clear and concise preaching, teaching, understanding, and loving of your word. All in all, Lord, may we look to you and your gospel for the wonderful, wonderful salvation that you've provided to us. It's so radical, so vast, and so amazing, Lord. We thank you and we love you that we should be called your children, Lord. In your name, amen.